Welcome to Finance for Physicians, a show where we empower physicians like you to practice medicine the way you always dreamed you would. This podcast features doctors, physicians, and experts that share one main thing in common. We believe having control of our finances leads to having control of our lives. In a world where doctors' lives are often dictated by our needs to maximize income, pay back massive student loans, and buy homes, many of us give up reaching those goals. But it doesn't have to be this way. If you are ready to learn how financial wellness creates happier doctors and patients, then I'm your guy. I'm your host and financial expert, Daniel Wren. Let's get started. Rich, what's up, dude? How are you? I'm doing well. We were just catching up before we started. It's been a while since I've seen you. It's actually been since, when was that, right in the middle of COVID, I think we talked about? I mean, it was it was March or April of 2020. Yeah, right in the thick of it. Right in the thick of it. When everybody yeah. was, I mean, it, that was kind of a scary time. Right, right. Yeah, right in the middle of quarantine and everything. So yeah, yeah. A lot has changed. Yes, it has. It has. Well, I'm excited. We're going to, we're going to dig into mortgages and home buying and, and the market and talk a lot about what's going on there. Rich is a rock star in the world of mortgage loan lending and works with Truist, which was SunTrust, Truist Bank, and primarily works with physician loans. And he knows all there is to know about physician loans and has lots of experience working in that area. So we're going to dig into all that. And I'm excited to kind of go through all that sort of stuff. And a lot of stuff we were just talking about too has changed since COVID. And as you all know, like interest rates have gotten crazy and they just have shot up really quickly. And so that's a big factor. And then there's banks that have collapsed and it's just kind of a little bit of a weird market right now. So we're going to dig into all that stuff. If you're listening in the live show, let us know if you have questions, throw those out there and we'll address those as we go you know, any questions are welcome and we can dig into that, but maybe we can start out with the, just this current state of the market. It's <laughs> mortgage. I think when we talked, the average mortgage rate was probably like three and a half percent or something for a 30 year. I'm guessing. I mean, it was lower because, uh, was it? it was like three. Yeah. yeah. Because I mean, it was, it was in the twos because we were doing investment property rates at three and a quarter, 3.5 which is insane. So like That's primary crazy. residents were in the, in the twos when we talked last. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. That must've been like the bottom, bottom. Yes. Yeah. And so a lot's changed there. What's the average 30 year mortgage rate right now? So we're it's, it's vacillates between the high sixes and mid sixes for a conventional rate. And that's pretty much started going up, you know, this year. And just to kind of back up to give you some, you know, history of why we were so low before is once we, you know, in 08, when we hit the Great Recession, we pumped a lot of stimulus into the market. And what controls interest rates are is the bond market. So the Fed pumped money into the bond market, bought up a bunch of mortgage-backed mortgage -backed securities, and that artificially pushed interest rates way down to stimulate the economy. So fast forward, we hit COVID and 
things start to go the other way. We think we're about to hit another collapse, but we don't because we go through another round of stimulus and that pushes rates even more low, you know, even lower. So that's what got us into the twos at that, you know, one point. And then last year is when the Fed started weaning off of that. So they stopped pumping money into the into mortgage-backed securities and started something called quantitative easing, which means they didn't just turn off the faucet, they slowed down. And that gradual, that gradual slowdown raised rates a little bit, but nothing really crazy. Then we started hitting inflation time, right? So a lot of people think that when the Fed raises interest rates, when the Fed raises the fund Fed's rate, which they've raised you know, almost every meeting this year, they think that is directly correlated to mortgage rates, but it's not. The Fed funds rate is for home equity lines, it's for credit cards, it's for commercial loans. But at the same time, we have inflation going way up and inflation is the enemy of interest rates. So the higher inflation goes, the higher our interest rates go. And that is what kind of pushed us, the combination of the Fed's actions and the inflation, you kind of pushed us up to this part, you know, this high level in a really short period of time. So now we're like, you know, in the high sixes for conventional loans. And each time the Fed looks at the inflation numbers, the way they what they look at them is they look at it, what the inflation number was last year in a particular month, and they compare it to what it is this year in that particular month. And if inflation was super high during that month back then, and it's a little bit lower this month, our rates will get better, right? If it's vice versa, if it was lower and it's a little bit higher this year, then our interest rates get worse. But what the Fed hasn't been doing is looking at how the graph goes up and down. So last year in April, you know, it was low. This year it was higher. So rates went way up and then they pumped more money into the, you know, they raised their funds rate. But in May, for instance, it was lower last year than it was in April of last year. So this year it's probably going to be, I mean, it was high last year rather so this year, it's probably going to be a little lower, and a lot of the experts are thinking that we might get a little bit of a break in May. From the increases? Yeah. What's the best metric, or what's the best, is it the 10-year treasury is the best to look at to kind of yeah. get a rough idea of yeah. what mortgage rate, because they kind of, I know the yeah. Fed funds rate is not a good no. direct indicator of mortgage rates, but is it the 10-year treasury? Yeah, the 10-year treasury is. There's a whole bunch of different, you know, you can look at, at the actual notes the 30-year notes and the 15-year notes and all that. But the 10-year treasury is a good indicator. It's not exact, but as it goes up and down, it's pretty, it's pretty good. But the main thing that people are really worried about right now, of course, is buying power, right? And the media is really negative about, <laughs> about buying power. And there is a reason for it because at the same time our rates are going up, so is appreciation. And the reason houses are appreciating so fast, or they did last year anyway, is because there is no inventory. So mm -hmm. when there's no inventory, there's no competition and rates go way up. 
not rates. Price. Uh, price. Yep. Supply demand. Yeah. So at the same time, we have increase in price and increase in rates. So the number you'll hear thrown around by the media is that every 1% that an interest rate goes up, that decreases your buying power by 10%. So if you're looking at, let's just say, you know, we're comparing 3% to 7%, you know, that's 40% that that decreases your buying power. But what they're not including is the raise of wages, you know, inflation, you know, the people are making more money on average. Some. Some, yeah, but I mean, if you look at the data, like every, every, like we are, like a lot, large numbers, yeah, yeah, wages are are going up. Even on you know middle class, like it, there is some increase in wages, so that cancels out some of that. Like just looking at my data, I I think it's probably decreased by about twenty percent. Buying power, just, just yeah, just looking at what I was able to qualify for people and what I am now. That, that's kind of what I'm seeing anyway. Yeah. Um, and, we'll, and real quick, I got to make a real quick disclaimer that I forgot to do in the beginning. Oh, goodness. I work for True, Truist, but these thoughts and ideas are my own. They're not, you know, Truist is not. This uh, is not advice. Yes, exactly. This is for educational purposes only. Right. Consult your advisors and everybody for advice. <laughs> yeah. Consult Daniel. Yes, if you work with us. Yeah. If you don't, then don't. start working with us or find your other advisor. Yes, and we'll circle back to some scenarios too, because really it depends on your situation and the numbers can skew even more in certain situations. So, but yeah, so mortgage rates have gone way up on pretty much everything from like, whether it's a 30 year, an arm or 15 year, pretty much all the products, the rates have gone up a lot. There's not like a, way around that and the problem with it is it's like prices have not gone down like theoretically they potentially should because like you were saying with the buying power in theory if buying power goes down prices should theoretically go down on houses but they haven't because the inventory is so low so that's kind of a weird situation it's like you're paying the same price as before but paying a right. way higher interest rate Right. That just crunches you even more. So it's kind of a weird market. Is there any changes around like the arm versus 30 year versus 15 year? And then the physician mortgage loan space, like what's changed over the year? I know when we talked last, you had to put money down on some of these, like the banks got a little squirrely during COVID and we're like, ah, we're not doing 0% anymore. Right? right, right, right. So right now that's gone. We're back to 100% financing. And this varies from bank to bank just a little bit of color, conventional loans are Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans. So the guidelines, the interest rates, et cetera, come from Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. The VA, it comes from the VA. FHA comes from the Federal Housing Administration. But these doctor loans are what we call in the industry portfolio loans. So we hold the money on our portfolio. It's our money. And the bank's the bank yes so we service it but we also hold the money on a conventional loan the money goes to fannie mae in the end the government even, even though it's serviced you know by the bank so because of that there is more wiggle room in guidelines and in price so the cool thing right now historically doctor loans at 100 percent financing used to have a slightly higher interest rate than a conventional loan 
right? But when you put them side by side, you're doing a 5% down conventional loan, you're doing 100% doctor loan, you have to pay PMI with a conventional loan, you don't with a doctor loan. So even if the rate was a little bit higher, it still made sense to do. But now, since interest rates have gone up, the doctor loans have stayed lower. So my rates for doctor are about a percent lower than conventional loans. So I'm like in the low sixes or high fives. So it's like put less down, lower interest rate. Yeah. Because <laughs> people ask me all the time, they're like, well, what's the downside? And I'm like, there isn't one now. You know, there used to, used be. to be. Yeah, there used to be. Like I could point to that. But now there's nothing. Like there, there's no mm. downside. If you can do a 100% loan at a percent lower interest rate, like tell me what the downside yeah. is, you know? But we'll do like 100% financing up to a million and then 5% down to 1.5 and then 10% down to 2 million. And then the other cool thing about the doctor loan is you can close prior to your start date. So you can close up to 90 days prior to the contracted start date and still go off of the income for the future doctor. So normally you have to provide like pay stubs or yeah. proof of income essentially right. and with a typical loan. Yes, loan the typical loan you're they're going to want you're like there are some variations to this but a typical loan you usually have to provide your first pay stub so you got to start your job yeah any other big changes that i didn't realize that about the rates being have swung the other direction yeah i mean that that is the biggest one and i have that conversation with clients every single day because mm -hmm. They call me and they're like, what? Like, I was just got a quote for a conventional loan. It was 7%. I'm like, yep. Are arms, <laughs> are arms low? Are arms about the same rate as 15? Arms are, pro, you know, they're lower than fixed rates. Yeah. The spread isn't as much as it was in the past. Yeah. Just because they don't want to, you know. But an arm right now really isn't a terrible decision. Yeah. Because most people are probably going to refinance pretty soon anyway. Experts are predicting that rate probably, this is for conventional loans, go down to like fives by the end of the year. At some mm -hmm. point. Yeah. So if that happens, then, you know, there might be a lot of people that refinance. Yeah. Um, Arms are fixed for just for those that aren't clear, like fixed for a certain period of time and then they become variable interest rates. So yeah. a lot of times the interest rates a little lower than fixed rate options. Right. But then you know then the trade-off is it goes variable so if rates right. go higher i mean at right. the end of the day we don't know for sure what rates interest rates are going to do in the future right we have no idea we, we like to act that. like we do and make yeah predictions. i mean <laughs> I, like, i'm I watching the market i'm watching the market all day every day and i you know listen to updates all the time and i still like nobody knows you yeah. know like and everybody's been predicting that there will be a you know a housing like for the past four years, it's been like, we're at a bubble. We're about to recession's a coming. Yeah. Recession's coming. Recession actually might be here right now. I mean, it could be happening, but yes. like, yes, could not be too. I mean, right. it's right. probably, you know? Yeah. But as far as the housing bubble is concerned, the way inventory is, which is, you know, the issue you brought up that, you know, the keeps the values from going down. That's also the thing that's going to prevent a housing bubble. Mm -hmm. because there's no chance that we, you know, we decline when we have this inventory issue because the, those numbers are going to keep there. And they've shown that they've slowed down, you know, appreciation has 
but it is, you know, still increasing. There's no bubble or drastic drop like everybody's been. Predicting. Yeah. Can you have two mortgages? Can you buy, can you have two physician loans through Truist? Not through Truist. So through the Truist guideline is you can have one at a time. Okay. Mm -hmm. But there is an exception where if you have over 20%, like let's say you bought one when you're a resident gone up. and then it's gone up a bunch. If you have 20% equity, then you can get a second one as an exception, as long as you can qualify and afford both of them. But like crossover between banks, there's no, no rule that says you can't have more than one. And there's also no rule that says you can't have multiple over your, you know, your lifetime. Like a lot of people think that you can only get one and that's not true. You're right. 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 Yeah. I work with a lot of people and we got many over the years. So we got a question from anonymous attendee and it's funny that we just, we're talking about this is right after we were talking about predicting future rates, they would like to, if we could give our best guesstimate hand wave about the chances we will get back to the old days of 10 plus percent interest rates. I don't oh, think so. Impossible. Not impossible. No, no, never impossible. So. Cause it's happened no. before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so in case, so this person obviously knows about the old days. A lot of people don't even know about the old days. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Like a lot of the people that call me, their only knowledge about interest rates is since 08, where it's been, you know, four or three, two percent. Right? right. So everyone's like six percent. That's awful. Right. Like, the majority of my career was, you know, like in the, was at six something percent, you know, like it's not like. Probably when you started, it was six to 7%, right? Like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like right now we are not in an abnormal, you know, time. It's just, we have yeah. to figure out that it's the new normal. I wonder what would have to happen for it to get into the 10% range. I think if inflation, if the inflation numbers keep staying steady at the rate or maybe even going a little higher for whatever reason and the fed keeps raising their rates that could drive rates higher yeah 10 yeah. percent. I mean, that's the scenario i think yeah short if we if inflation doesn't get inflation is the thing like the inflation yeah. is the key to all of it so if what the fed has been doing curbs inflation it's not going to go to 10 percent. and also if we hit another recession then rates are, they're going to have to pump money in the, the economy. It'll go down, way down. And we'll have lower rates. I don't think it's likely, but who knows, you know, like. Yeah, those are the two outcomes, I think, is like the overcorrection. They would, you know, the government intervention is driving a lot of this. So it's like either they overcorrect in terms of raising the rate too high, too fast, which puts us in a recession, which probably ends up in really low interest rates in the next few years. On the other hand, if they the opposite happens like they don't act they don't realize how bad inflation really is and it's not changing it or it's continuing and then they have to keep raising it and then that's the scenario where the 10 percent plus rates happen yeah and yeah. i mean i think those are both possibilities i think they're like low on both ends potentially i think um, we're much closer to the fed pushing us into a recession i would agree but it's hard to say i've made so many predictions that have been wrong over the years so. <laughs> I'm not a great fortune teller. So anyway, what about all the bank collapses and all that scary stuff going on with like, I mean, should I be concerned about, especially if I'm buying a house and 
you know, I'm saving up money for a down payment or I have, or even just like which bank I choose, like how important is it to have, to be cons considering bank financial position when I'm doing all this stuff? I don't, like, I think a lot of that was because of the specific banks. So just to kind of, do you want me to give you some color on like what led to the Silicon Valley bank? Collapse? Yeah. I mean, I think that would be interesting. So, so basically the way that banks work is when you deposit money with a bank, they're not just going to let the money sit there. You know, they need to make money. So they take your money and they invest it. Your um, cash. Yes. Yes. So any money that, you know, you have held at the bank, they're investing and they typically don't invest it in risky stuff. You know, they're putting it in bonds or mortgage-backed security, you know, bonds. And those are, you know, pretty safe investments. So Silicon Valley Bank is, was, I don't know, I think they're still going. <laughs> is, they were a bank that specialized in like venture capitalists and startups and tech and like all this stuff. And during COVID, like the, that just blew up, like that sector. Hmm. And they became the cool go-to bank for all that. So their deposits tripled, like yeah. almost overnight, like in 2020. So what they did was they took, you know, they took all this money and they put it into bonds, which were paying like 1.5% at the time. Oh. And at the time that was good because if you remember on a savings account, you'd get like 0.1% or something. On the best one. Yeah. So fast forward, I also should mention that they didn't have a risk officer for a long period of time. Also, <laughs> also one of their executives was a prior executive at Lehman Brothers, I think. Yeah, yeah. So they had a few warnings. Right. Yeah, there's some big time warnings. But essentially, they started getting into the position when, when the Fed raised the rates the interest rates on these bonds started going up, right? So they have these 1.5% bonds. And then all of a sudden, bonds are trading elsewhere for 3, 3%, 3.6%. So if they try, so when they, they ran into some trouble and they needed some money, nobody wants to buy a 1.5% bond. So the bank is usually counting on, okay, we'll put it in this, this bond. And if we have pro problems, we'll sell them. Right. But nobody wanted to sell it. So they wound up in some, you know, going through some liquidity issues. So they, they sold like a ton of these bonds at a big haircut, big loss. And then at the same time, there were some influencers you know, that got, a, got, a, got wind of this information oh, gosh. and kind of tweeted it out there. And then that started what they call a bank run. So everyone, the old... I got to get my money out right now. If that bank run didn't happen, they would have probably been fine. Like even mm. if they lost money on the bond sales, they would have been fine. But they got to the point where they didn't have enough money to pay back all the people who were. Then they had to make more sales and more losses. Yes. And, and they hit a point. And then they hit a point and then the Fed had to come in. And essentially this time it wasn't taxpayers dollars that bailed them out. It was other banks. So a bunch of the bigger banks, you know, loaned them money to kind of 
pull them out of the weeds. But them, you know, Signature Bank and Silvergate, I think one of them was in crypto, you know, like it, they're different situations than the normal bank. I'm not saying that this couldn't happen to another bank because in this connected world we're in, this like the fact that a bank run could happen over a seven day period and just put a bank out of business is kind of scary. Well, social but, media is pretty powerful. Yes, very powerful. Like, but spreads. But the, your regular, you know, bank and these, you know, the larger banks out there, I'm not, you know, I'm not worried about it. It's kind mm -hmm. of like one off. Yeah. Okay. Well, so let's get into the home purchasing decision. So I'd love to talk a little bit about like the buy versus rent situation. Yeah. And then we can talk about the, how much you can afford scenario as well. Cause that's both of these, I think have changed quite a bit over time. Yeah. So buy versus rent. I think that renting kind of gets a bad rap and it's underappreciated and I think in certain circumstances, maybe we could paint the picture of like a scenario where we would both agree that it's like a, I mean, like the classic rent scenario is like, you have no idea what your future looks like. Lots of uncertainty, new area, like finances are, you're unsure about things. Like, yeah, yeah. you don't know what, maybe you're new into practice in a new area of the country and you don't have, you're, especially if maybe you're single and you don't have any family there. Right. Right. And you've never lived in the city before and, and you don't have money for a down payment. So there's all this like risk potential if you were to buy and cause with, so renting is nice in the way that it is very, very flexible, like low commitment, low maintenance. Like you don't have to even, I mean, if you have a good deal, you don't even have to like fix things. Like, right. you don't, I mean, maybe you have to plunge a toilet, but like, you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to like fix the broken stuff. And those were the or, days, man. I mean, there's a lot of appeal to renting. So listen, I'm like in my job, I'm supposed to say that renting is evil. You know, <laughs> renting is the worst thing you could do Never. in your life. But you know, I, I mean, obviously I think that there is huge benefit. Like if you compare the two, there's a huge benefit to owning, but yeah depending upon the situation like you said if you aren't ready to buy don't you know like when in doubt, yeah. it's not something that you should do just because you think you should you know mm -hmm. if you if you're not entrenched in a city and or you're young and you don't you all the things you said you know those are all legitimate reasons to rent and i think young people should rent you know mm -hmm. before they buy because there's a growing up to do. It's the, it's the same thing with everything. You gotta, you you can't just throw yourself into owning a house. There's a lot to deal with. Right, right. We had a question I I overlooked here. Backtrack into the primary residence and conventional loan and physician loan and that sort of thing. And the question is, can I still get a physician loan for a new primary residence while keeping the current property and loan as a rental property? Yes. So. If the loan is with Truist, our rule would be, you have to have at least 20% equity in that property to get another one through us, okay? If it's with somebody else or with us during that, under those circumstances, you just need to be able to qualify for both. And a lot of people think that just the fact that they're planning on renting it out, will be able to 
count rental income to offset that mortgage. And that's not the case. If I'm going to count rental income, you need to have a history of having rentals and, you know, show it on your tax returns and that sort of thing. So as long as you qualify, like for instance, if you're a resident and you bought a house for 200 grand and you're about to start your attending job and you want to level up by a $500,000 house and you want to keep that one as a rental and you're making, you know, good money and your debt to income ratio is low, no problem. Yeah, you can definitely. Can you buy a rental property with a physician loan? No. There might, buy... be a bank, there might be a bank out there that does them. I, I, I don't know. What happens when you buy a primary residence as under a physician loan and then it magically becomes a rental property within a month or two? That's fraud. <laughs> Bro, that's fraud. Yeah, that's fraud. Like if they get caught. I mean, they... like if you're telling the truth and it's your primary residence, it's kind of what I'm so, like so if you've it's... lived there a year and then it becomes a rental house. That's fine. Like things change. Like if you if you bought the house, you legitimately moved in and then a year later you got relocated or got a job in a different city and needed to, you know, move. Like that's mm. a like life happens you can't force somebody to live in a house but if they're lying then that's a completely different yeah so tell the truth always for sure <laughs> yeah uh, that's yeah, important for sure. isn't there something in the contracts that says like it needs to be your primary residence indefinitely i don't know i don't know how up? the mortgage reads i mean the main thing that that they require on primary residences is you're supposed to move in within 60 days. Okay. So, so that, that is to give you time to do renovations or whatever, but they don't want you like moving in next year, you know? Yeah. So renting has its benefits, but I am like all that being said about renting, I think, you know, the lean for most people listening is that eventually you should buy. And, you know, once you, it's kind of like when you're getting settled, once you're settled is the time to buy and because yeah. long periods of time, it's just a lot lower cost and it's your home and you get to own it and you get to make it your own and you can start to build some wealth in it. And I mean, like longer term, for sure, buying is the ideal way to go. You just have to be, I've seen some sticky situations happen with buying a little too soon. Yeah. Typically is with a physician income, you can meander manage through those sticky situations but i think <clears throat> a better question maybe is so like let's say you've kind of gotten to that point of like it's time to buy or maybe you're upgrading to a, a nicer home i'd love it if we could kind of explore like what's the right amount to be budgeting for on a house maybe we could start with like the bank's cap yeah yeah oh, and real quick i'll just go back to the rent versus own thing so right now, a lot of people are saying, hey, I'm going to rent until, uh, you know, rates go down or, or prices mm -hmm. go down. The bad part about that is rent is also going up, right? So if you're continually paying higher and higher amounts of rent, even if you could have, you know, even if the interest rates and stuff are higher right now, if you were to buy something right now, you can always refinance, right? Like the average person only keeps a mortgage for five years. So, so there's a great chance that you're going to refinance out of that higher rate and be in a much better situation than if you would have rented for a certain amount of time. I think with renting too, like there's some other caveats that are important. Got it. 
some other important things about the rent decision. I've seen some really strange situations lately, the past few years, where the rent rates are strangely low for the price of the house. I think it's especially common in like these high inflation or where property values have appreciated really fast. I think the rent rates have just not kept pace quite as fast and like or historically like rent rates take longer to inflate than real estate prices, but you're starting to see rent rates go up now. And then the other weird thing with renting is like some of these areas like that have a really high property tax rates like Illinois, I think is the worst as far as property tax rates that I've ever seen. Maybe Texas has some bad areas. New Jersey is a bad state for property tax rates. That can like skew the equation a little bit, like making buying less appealing potentially. Sure. Now in theory, like they're going to just pass that cost right on through when you rent. Right. But it's worth looking at all that stuff too. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's the most I can get a loan for if... <laughs> If I so, want to, so when somebody asks me that question, like, because they always want to know, like, what is my max? Like, tell is me that the I'm, first question you normally get? Not the first, but the, like when people are getting pre-approved, that's what they want to know. They want to know what's the max I can qualify for. I mean, not everybody. Like, some people are budget conscious. They better not be our clients. Just kidding. <laughs> no, not your clients. Your clients never say. But when they when they ask that question, mine mine is, well, you know, what's more important is what you're comfortable paying, you know? Mm. And that's different for everybody. Like it's important that you are you know enough about your finances to know what that number is. And I'm not the one I'm not the one that's going to tell you what that mm. number is. I can, like, I can find out what your max amount is, but that's doing, you no know, favors. If I'm trying to get you to do something that might not be in your best interest or might cause stress, you know, mm -hmm. later on in your life and doctors have enough stress. They don't need more because of their mortgage. Yeah. Well, so, let's just for funsies, what's the max? So the maximum, like if I'm making 300,000, I have no debt. 300,000, no debt, no outsiding because they have to take into consideration your student loans and other debt payments, but like to simplify things, let's just assume I have no debt. I mean, you're, uh, you're, you're the sky's the limit, Daniel. The the limit. <laughs> you tell no me million? what you mean. No, like 300,000 with no debt, you could pretty much choose. The way that the bank looks at it is we, I mean, could I get a $2 million house yeah, probably if with a $300,000 income? Yeah. If you have no debt, probably. The max, maximum income that you need is, or the debt to income ratio is 43%. Mm -hmm. So that's the max. So yeah. if, you, if you take whatever your monthly income is times 0.43, that'll tell you like the maximum you could pay per month. But that also includes debt because there, there's usually no doctor that has no debt, you know? So you got to factor in car loans, you got to factor mm -hmm. in credit cards, you got to factor in, you know, anything you have a monthly payment on is going to subtract from that. Yeah. The problem with that situation, I'm just thinking about the numbers in my head. If I'm making 300,000 and take home pay and paying for that kind of house, I imagine like if you, that a $2 million house, like the mortgage payment itself is not going to cost this, but like, I think that all in cost is going to be in like the 10,000 a month, maybe range roughly, yeah. maybe, maybe 10 to 14,000 a month. 
range, depending on like what interest rate we use and what tax rates we use and that kind of thing. Yeah. So that like 10 to 14,000 a month, $2 million house, that's probably pushing like leaving like 4,000 a month, maybe three to 7,000 a month after the house. So in other words, you have three to 7,000 a month to spend on everything else, <laughs> including right. saving for your future. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, I... you can make do like you could probably afford it. And I think that's my point in bringing this up is I think that's what the bank is going to look at. They want to make sure you're able to make the payment and they don't have the time to go through your financial situation or that's not their job really to go through your fin financial situation. Yeah. They're just looking at what you're going to be able to afford, you know, assuming that's all you have. And that's really, that's what house poor is, I think, in my definition. Yeah, is. for sure. And, and it might not be 2 million. It might be like 1.5 or something like that. A but lot. Yeah, it's a lot. And, but it doesn't need, you don't need that. You know, I. You may want that. You may want that. but you know. I mean, and there's high cost living areas and that kind of thing. But I can't tell people, you know, it has to be their decision. I mean, I can, mm -hmm. I can, you know, say that all I want, but. I still have people that are like, no, I want, I want as much as you can You're give You're not me. the boss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But what's also interesting to me about the, how much can you afford question is a lot of people have like rules of thumb they talk about. And that's, I mean, it's okay to have a rule of thumb. It can be good in some cases, but like they haven't really changed their rules of thumb as like some of these huge things, like the interest rates, for example, have a massive effect on what you can afford, but like, we're not really taking that into consideration necessarily. Or, I mean, the question is, are you taking that into consideration if you're considering buying the fact that it's a massively different cost breakdown? I was looking at the numbers for the $2 million house earlier. And if it's like, if I had a 10,000 a month budget for all in house costs, it would at a 3% interest rate, I could afford the $2 million house at 10,000 a month all in. But if it was 7%, it'd have to be 1.3 million. Right. Right. So it's like $700,000 massive just because the rate went up. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't, you can't look at it from a cost point of view. You have to look at it from a monthly, not like a, not a purchase price point of view. You have to look at it for, from a monthly cost point of view mm -hmm. and then figure out, I mean, that's why I asked that question. What is, what is your number? And then I can work backwards and figure out where they should be, you know, depending upon what the interest rate is, that could be different, but you need to look at it from a monthly payment point of view, not a purchase price point of view. Right. Um, you know what your monthly payment is, then you can look at the purchase prices and see what's in that, you know, what's in that range. And if those will suit your needs or not. Yeah. I think what it comes down to is having a financial plan, which is what we do every day that's like our day job in our world is helping people have a financial plan. Basically all a financial plan is, is like a plan for your money. So like how much is coming in, where's it going? What's most important to you? So, you know, what happens with the house decision is a lot of times people are like, I want to travel. Family's important. I want to retire soon. ASAP preferably. And I want the $2 million house. <laughs> yeah. <You laughs> it's like, it no, all. you can't do all that. So yeah. then it's like, okay, well, let's prioritize stuff. And it's like, okay, family's most important, then traveling, then maybe 
retiring at a reasonable age. And then maybe we find out that the house is maybe fourth on the list or something. So it's like what a lot of times the missing exercise people fail to do when they don't have a financial plan is often they don't think through it like that. They get emotionally tied up in the decision of the house and they forget those really important other priorities and they don't like carve that money out. That's why they say save first, spend the rest. Right. It's like, you got to like carve out the long-term savings. Yeah. You got to carve yeah. out the money to travel. You got to carve out all that like important stuff first and then see what's like left over after like eating and lifestyle and that kind of thing. And that's how you back into the house number. That's like the ideal way to do it is you kind of back into the house. Yeah. Unless there's, I mean, I'm sure there's some people maybe listening that are like, actually the house is absolute most important to me. Like, and that's all I care about. Yeah. You know? If that's the case, then that's a different, you know, story for sure. In that case, it's like, no, Rich, like show me the max. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, everybody has different priorities, but th what you said was knowing your financial plan. Like that's the whole thing. Because that, that way you can set your priorities and figure out what is most important. But if you don't know your numbers, if you don't know, like, I mean, you need to know what everything is going to cost. Utilities, you know, mm. internet, cable, like you need to know what that groceries, you need to know what those, that whole package is going to be like. And I will say this, like any of the people that come to me from you, they always have a plan <laughs> and, yeah. and a lot of times they're like hey i want my i want daniel or my financial planner to look at my stuff you know i want them to give me you know their opinion and right. to me like some mortgage guys don't like it when there's a financial planner dictating things but i love <laughs> it man like because i they're coming into it knowing you know what they should know and with somebody who has their best interests at heart yeah. So if you work with us and we don't, and you don't feel confident in those numbers, we're, just let us know and we can help you crunch those numbers, especially if you're approaching a decision around this. And if you're a DIYer and you don't have a plan, this is just like a reminder or incentive, I guess, like you want to for sure do that before you, I guess really the time to do it is to have it, have a plan before you set your budget, because, you know, that's the hard question. It's like, how much are you going to spend? And you definitely don't want to start looking. The temptation is to look at houses before you yes. have a budget. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's a problem. And, and I, that, get, I get that all the time where people fall in love with a house and then I've already made an offer and it was accepted. Oh. <laughs> you know, and then I get then I get the application. And I'm like, you don't qualify for that. Like, uh, and you always will. I mean, if you look at a million dollar house versus $2 million, I mean, the nicer, the more expensive the house, it's nicer. Like you're going to yes, like it. Yes. <laughs> you're going to want that house. Yeah. It's not, it's not, but you know, just having that plan too, it kind of keeps your head level when you're getting into that emotional decision-making. So other than that, like having a plan is important, but let's say you got the budget and you're getting into the decision-making phase what I know credit's important in terms of like getting the best deal. What is the idea? What credit score do you have to have to get like the best terms and everything? So usually, and this will vary from bank to bank too, but usually 740 is the magic number. Like we'll mm -hmm. get the best interest rate if you have over 740. Yeah. Uh, there are different tiers in our program. Like if you have 
you need a 720 to be able to do 100% financing. If you're between 700 and 699, you got to do 5% down. If you're between 680 and 699, you're 10% down. Does the rate go up? Yeah. Yeah. The rate goes up, but there's also, it's kind of offset because there's a difference in the rate if you put money down. Okay. So 100% financing, like for instance, today it was like 6%, 5% down is a 10th off of that. And then 10% down is a 10th off of that. Yeah. We got a question. I think Hue, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name says no extra cookie for credit above 800. No. <laughs> Congrats on credit above 800. By I the mean, way. that's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. The other thing I would like to point out about credit is people don't realize a lot of times that what you see at home is not what we see. So when you're pulling your credit, you, it's credit karma or any of those credit bureaus, you have a, you know, a credit monitoring plan with your bank. Those numbers are going to be lower than what I see. And the reason for that is every, there are so many different scoring models. So what you're looking at at home is like the credit card model, but there's also a car loan model and a mortgage model and, and, you know, unsecured loan model. So they all have different ways they look at scores and you can't really find the mortgage model at home. So the majority of the scores that people see at home are vastly different than what I see. One like tip that I'll share is myfico.com has, if you Google myfico.com mortgage scoring model, you can find a way to, to get those scores that the bank will see, the mortgage bank. Just a word of warning. I think they make you sign up for like a 30 day, you know, 30 day free, free trial. Payment. Yeah. And then they'll charge you if you don't cancel it. So make sure to cancel it. But, Put it on your calendar. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of times I'll pull somebody's credit and they'll be like, oh my God, this is way, way lower than what I saw. And then I'll explain it to them and tell them what they need to do to get their scores up and have them go look at their mortgage scores on my FICO before they come back to me so that I'm not, you know, repulling credit too mm. much. How often do you see physicians with below the seven... 40, I guess that's the threshold. I mean, a lot. It's probably less than the rest of the population, in my opinion. Like, I don't know. But I, especially residents or younger doctors who don't haven't established a lot of credit yet, that's the thing that I see the most is like doctors coming right out of medical school, going into residency. They'll have nothing in their name because mom and dad, you know, paid for everything. Hmm. And that's something that's advice that I would give is just make sure that you have three trade lines, three accounts, like credit cards, car loans, unsecured loans, get some debt. We want to see three of those. And I'm not saying like, get some debt and charge it all the way up and be in the hole. Be responsible with the debt. Yeah. Use it for paying gas and pay it off, but establish your own credit so that you're not, because I have a lot of residents that come to me and they have no trade lines. They might have a good credit score, but I need to see that they have three trade lines, like that they've been paying on for 12 months. Mm -hmm. If they don't, I can build non-traditional trade lines through like cell phone bill or utilities but a lot of times those are in dad's or mom's name. Mm. So if I don't have any of that, then I got to say, hey, go work on it and come back later. So that's something that I would recommend. 
is you know establishing credit early yeah it's worth under understanding what your credit is i think you know it sounds like the number is sometimes difficult to get like and converting it between your score and that score yeah. or whatever yeah. yeah but there's all there's some easy things you can do to increase your credit like I have seen people have trouble with like the debt ratio. Like they say they just have one credit card and they use it for everything. And like the balance on it is like high, but they pay it off every month. But like, it looks like it's 90% utilized or something like that, that which hurts their credit score. But it's like kind of dumb that it does that, but that's yeah. just part of the formula thing. Right. But you can easily like either increase the credit limit or pay it off faster or whatever. Right, right. So. What people don't realize is that the credit the creditor reports to the credit bureau once a month. So mm -hmm. if American Express reports to the credit bureau on the 15th, because that's when they're, you know, the payment is due, they usually report on the same day that the payment's due. And it's your balance is up there when they report it, you pay it off the next day. Well, it's not going to show that it's paid off for another 30 days. You know, it's going to show that it's way charged up, like you said. So it's best to keep those numbers below 30% of the limit. That's kind of the rule of thumb. When's the best time for people to be reaching out to like lenders? Like during in, the month? In relation to the time that they're going to buy, like 30 days before they buy, 60 days before they buy or? Yeah, before they buy. So a pre-approval, a pre-approval is good for like 120 days. So like your yeah. credit report is only good for 120 days. But what I tell people is this come to me before you start looking, before you start falling in before love. Before you make power. an offer for yes, sure. Before. Yeah. So, you know, it only takes us a couple of days to do a pre-approval, but if you fall in love with the house and you need it yesterday, and then, you know, we got to put you to the top of the list and then, you know, maybe it's not an easy pre-approval and then it just turns into a, you know, nice. fire drill. But yeah, I mean, really, whenever you're about to start looking in earnest, you know, that's when I get pre-approved, you know, just get pre-approved and then, then, then you're off to the races. So get your, have a financial plan, then talk to the lender, talk to Rich. How often do people like... How often are people shopping rates? Like, do you get that a lot with physicians? Yeah. Or are they normally just like, you're my guy? It's a little of both. You know, I have, I get a lot of referral business from, mm -hmm. you know, realtors and uh, preferred lender for a couple of builders. Like usually when I get something from them, they're not shopping me, you know, but I get a lot of business from other sources where they're getting tons and tons of quotes you know, yeah. or they, you know, they read that they needed to get three quotes and that's what they're going to do. And there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. One thing I would recommend when you're shopping, you know, for a mortgage is that you find out two things. You find out what their interest rate is, of course, like that's the first thing. Everyone knows that. But the second is what their lender fees are, because that can change immensely if somebody has way higher fees and that's why they have a lower rate like that's not comparing apples then, to right so so lender fees are the the part of the closing cost that goes directly to the bank one of those is the origination fee so you may have heard the term points that's like one point is one percent origination fee and you really want to know that because that can add up quick, especially on your $2 million loan. So you want to know if they charge points 
typically in my quotes, I'm not charging any points. The only time I charge points are is if somebody wants to buy down the rate, pay to get a lower rate. And then the other lender fees are like what the bank charges on every loan. Like we have a processing fee is what we call it. Appraisal fee, credit report fee. Yeah, there's um, a bunch of them. Tax service fee. So and those they should are the break ones- it down. Yeah. And, so those and you are should the be able to ask know. for it too. Like a lot of, we see it with a lot of people. They, the classic is they're like talking to three, they heard that you ought to talk to three lenders and they go to one and they're like, Hey, Bob, give me some pricing. And they're like 6% interest rate. And then that's all that the email says or whatever yeah, they communicate. Yeah. And then the other one's like 6% and a thousand closing in the email. And then the third one sends the full cost breakdown, which is more in line with what you're talking about. And then they, they send it to us and they're like, and maybe the full cost breakdown is like six and a half percent, which is higher than the other two. And they're like, well, I think I should go with the 6% interest rate because it's a lower rate. But the problem is like, we have no idea what the first two, like you have to have the full breakdown to know what you're even looking at. And I would not even go further with someone until I saw that full breakdown just to, I mean, that's good. Even if you're going to use one lender, it's just good practice to like, look at the full cost. Yeah. You, I mean, you should know what your costs are, but also with the full breakdown, you need to discern what the lender fees are from the rest of it, because the city and state taxes, the escrows, the title fees, those are going to wind up being exactly the same, no matter who you go with. Well, they should be. They well, they will be. They will eventually. What what the person estimates up front may not be right. So I run into this a lot because I overdisclose. I want you know I want the person to go to closing and pay less than what they thought what they were. So when I put all of the fees on there the way they're supposed to be, and then the other guy doesn't, you know, like he like really lowballs all or forgets to put a title fee on there or something. Even though my, you know, le- my lender costs are lower, his overall costs look lower, mm. but they're not because in the end, those fees are going to be exactly the same, no matter what. The only fees that are going to change are going to be the lender fees. Yeah. Yeah. That's confusing to look at. We've looked at them a lot, but this is all good stuff. I think we could go on and on. I know we're getting close to time. So I wanted to kind of start to wrap up and, and talk about some follow-up actions to think about. First of all, I've already thrown it out there. Like our team is always happy to help with financial planning, the financial planning aspect, which I think is important in establishing that plan. You know, especially if you work with us for sure, keep us in the loop. If you're not working with us, we're happy to do like a 30 minute call to talk about like pressing questions or look at like a loan breakdown for you. If you want, like we can do stuff like that in that 30 minute intro call, which is no cost. So make sure and, and, and look into that. Or if you're doing it yourself, like, you know, have that plan in place. And then Rich is a great resource. What's awesome about Rich is he's already said this himself, but I'll say it too, to reinforce that. Like he's very objective, even, I mean, of course he has incentive to recommend certain things to you, but like, he's a pretty objective guy. Like he's going to tell you if he thinks that you should, you know, be renting or if you're spending too much or whatnot. So he's a great resource to reach out to. Rich, can you throw out some like ways for people to get in touch with you and a little bit more about how to find you? Yes, richard.richie, R-I-C-C-I, at truest.com. Yes, my name is Rich Richie. Uh, <laughs> I've heard Richie Rich a, 
maybe once or twice in my <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> and then you're going to put my contact info in the yeah. description, I assume. That's my email address. My website is www.truest.com forward slash Richard.Richie. So there's kind of how you can, you know, get in touch with me. Awesome. Well, it's been fun. And I'm going to put, I'll throw in a link to this mortgage all-in calculator that we have. That's really helpful to kind of look at cost breakdowns as well. Any other resources or suggestions you can think of, Rich, that we didn't hit on? Yeah, no. I mean, talk to a professional is my Yeah. Opinion. And talk early. And Rich is not aggressive either. Like he's not, that's partly why we... I mean, I like Rich as a friend, but, <laughs> you know, I professionally appreciate his non-aggressive approach. Like some right. of these lenders get hyper-aggressive and I do not like that. Um, I mean, so. I've, I've told you, you've sent me other, you know, another estimate and I'm, you know, I've told you their deal's better than mine, you know, yeah. like, I don't, like I, and, and this is not bragging, but I do enough business where I don't, I don't need to scratch and crawl, claw for it, you know, and I don't need to to coerce people into doing business with me. Yep. You know, it's a luxury to have that. Yeah, it's a good spot to be in. Yeah. Well, it's been fun, Rich. I appreciate you coming on and keep up the good work. You too, my friend. Good good to talk to you under uh, better circumstances than yeah. 2020. Yeah, that was a... We made the best of it. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. You've been listening to Finance for Physicians. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast player. On this show, we believe that when you prioritize your finances, you take better care of yourself, have more fulfilling relationships with your families, and most importantly, provide higher quality care for your patients. If you feel this way too and want to learn more, then make sure to join our community. Follow the Finance for Physicians Facebook group for bonus content and sneak peeks on next week's episode. Thanks for listening.